Good evening, and welcome to Culinary Historians of Chicago Zoom show on Rum Night, or should we call it our Rum Show? This is where you go titter, 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 and I can hear you, but we can't now. We had originally scheduled a program on food and Shakespeare for tonight, but our presenter, actor, and cook, John Tufts, had family emergencies, so we have rescheduled his show for mid-August, and we will be sending you a date shortly. And since the show must go on, we are fortunate to have our food historian and author, Cynthia Clampett, stay, step in to take over the starring role for tonight. And now for tonight's program, we've got one of our very own culinary historian members and frequent speaker to our group, Cynthia Clampett. Cynthia is a writer, geographer, and food historian. She has written textbooks for every major educational publisher in the United States, including Colonial Williamsburg Foundation and the National Geographic Learning. She is author of Midwest Maze, How Corn Shaped the U.S. Heartland, and Pigs, Pork, and Heartland Hogs, Wild Boar to Bacon Fest, as well as the award-winning travel narrative, Waltzing Australia, and it was in Australia that she first became aware of the international impact of the rum trade. So, Cynthia, come on down and give us a taste of what rum is all about. Excellent. Thank you very much, Jerry. You're welcome. Um, okay, well, the rule of rum. And the reason I call it the rule of rum is because for about 300 years, rum dominated world trade. It was it was one of the leading it was the leading economic etiquette, uh, uh, you know, directive for the whole world. So anyway, it's uh, one of the things that uh, I always say is you don't have to actually drink rum to appreciate the history because it was a big part of American history in particular. Um, to start off, I should have also mention one of the things I always tell people, you know, in school you always see timelines, and so we tend to think of history as being a line, but I'd say history is more like a web. It all it attaches to all sorts of other things that are sometimes surprising. And so one of the things I will be doing is sort of going off on some of those attached concepts. So it won't be completely linear, but it will all hang together. So anyway, rum has had a bigger impact on world history than any other spirit. It is the one spirit that is indigenous to the, to the new world. It was created in the Caribbean. Um, and like I said, you don't have to drink it to appreciate it. But the history of rum is anchored in the history of sugar. So we'll start with sugar. Sugar was pretty much from sort of that curve over between India and Thailand along the Bay of Bengal there. That's where sugar originated. For most of history, people didn't know where it came from. Surprisingly, even with as, as huge as the spice trade was for so much of history, um, it was a long time before sugar came in to, to the picture, although people knew about it. Even the prophet Jeremiah writes about sweet cane from a distant land. So they heard about it. Um, when the Alexander the Great arrived with his, his armies, they were all surprised to discover that there was, as they said, honey that was not made by bees. So everybody understood that, you know, had little kind of experiences with sugar, but hadn't really gotten any sugar available until about the 1100s when Arabs started growing it in, in some of their oases and crusaders may have tasted it and brought back tales, um, but it wasn't added to the, Venice basically controlled the spice trade back then. 
and it wasn't added to Venice's spice trade until the 1200s. And the reason I say it was added to the spice trade is that's how people treated it. It was so rare and so expensive that you added it to things. Um, King Charles of France sprinkled it on his toasted cheese. In Italy, they sprinkled it on pasta because it wasn't just tasty, it was a way of showing that how wealthy you were. Um, sugar meant money, and it did for a long time, in fact. So this is the 1200s, and even as late as, as Shakespearean England, this is always one of my favorite stories about sugar, is people quickly figured out that sugar rotted your teeth, but you had to be rich to have sugar. So people started blackening their teeth to look like they had eaten enough sugar to rot their teeth because it would make them look richer. So anyway, so by the 1200s, you've got sugar. So people are beginning to experience sugar. It's still rare. It's still part of the spice trade. But then 1498, and Vasco da Gama makes it around the end of Africa and to India and grabs the spice trade, all of it, basically, but including sugar. And so suddenly, Portugal's got a handle on sugar. And Portugal and Spain were enemies and sort of frenemies, enemies who also cooperated a lot because the whole world had been divided by the Pope between Spain and Portugal at this point. 1493 is when they did that, the line of demarcation. It's why Portugal or Portuguese is spoken in Brazil and Spain and the rest because the line of demarcation went through that. So, so the whole country has been divided between Spain and Portugal because they are the most powerful countries in the world. And so Portugal has the sugar, and Spain has just discovered, of course, 1492, the best possible place to grow sugar, which is what was called the West Indies back then. Perfect weather, 1493 on his trip back, Columbus took samples of sugarcane and proved that it would grow in the Indies. So as soon as Vasco da Gama had broken through on the trade routes, everybody wanted to start growing, well, everybody who could get to the Indies, which is basically Spain and Portugal, wanted to start growing sugarcane. Um, by 1500s, I mean 1498, so two years later, 1500s, it was still a, a costly a, a commodity rather, but it was becoming more available. The Portuguese started growing it in Brazil, which was their little toehold in the New World. Um, Spain is growing it in, in Hispaniola, and so it's becoming greater. By 1520, the Portuguese are shipping sugar to Europe. Um, people are beginning to think of, of sugar as, as a, an ingredient, not just a rare commodity. The very first cookbook on cooking with sugar was printed in Venice in 1541. And one of the things I think is a lot of fun is the very first book on sugar in French was written by Nostradamus. And it sort of makes you wonder if he saw what was about to happen with sugar. Um, anyway, by the end of the century, sugarcane was growing and processed in Cuba, Jamaica, and Puerto Rico as well. So, in, I mean, back then, I mean, century sounds like a long time to us today, but back then, a century was a pretty short amount of time. Um, now, one of the things worth noting is this is not granulated sugar. Okay, that's what sugar looked like. That's why, if you've ever wondered why they call that mountain in Rio de Janeiro Sugarloaf Mountain, that's why, is because this is what sugar looked like. This was a relatively modest sugar loaf, but this is how all sugar was shipped. It was rather damped after it was processed, so they just packed it into uh, molds and then shipped it like this, rock hard. All of this dangerous looking equipment here is actually 
for breaking up the sugar. If you have any recipes from before 1800 that call for sugar, it will probably be powdered sugar just because that was the only thing you could do. You had to pound this into powder in order to use it. And now one of the things that did happen, I'll get rid of that, just a curiosity. But anyway, one of the things that did happen in the 1800s is a Frenchman named Jean-Étienne de Bourret, who had been a musketeer with Louis XV, came to the New World, New Orleans, the French-owned New World at that time, and decided he was going to not only grow sugar cane, but come up with a new way of processing sugar. And so it was de Bourret in 1803 who actually created the very first granulated sugar. You had to dry it out more and keep it to keep it separate, but he did that. And so 1803, France had granulated sugar in New Orleans. 1803, later in 1803, the United States bought the Louisiana Purchase, and so we kind of inherited granulated sugar by virtue of buying New Orleans. Um, but of course, it took a long time for that to, technology to disseminate just because there are, um, you know, everybody already had their, their molds for making the, the loaves. So anyway, so it took a while, but at least it existed. So that's, that's the status um, of sugar. At, by the 1800s, it, or before the end of the 1600s, rather, it's all still in those great bullet-shaped things. Um, so sugar is beginning to ship more readily by the 1600s. Now, one of the things that happened that changed the Caribbean and the sugar trade dramatically is 1588, the Spanish Armada was defeated by the British. Up until then, nobody else could find the Caribbean or travel the world or anything else because, as I said, it had been divided between Spain and Portugal. But with the end of the Spanish Armada, anybody with a boat could go wherever they wanted. And so pretty soon in the Caribbean, you've got the French, you've got the Danish, you've got the Dutch, you've got uh, the Portuguese and the Spanish, of course, and of course, the British. The British came kind of late and they got the one last little island, Barbados, which is about the size of O'Hare is what they compare it to in their literature. Um, so tiny little island, but that was the foothold that Britain got in, in, in the Britain or in, in the islands in the West Indies. And so that basically gave them a start with, with growing sugar, because up until then they had to try and count on getting some through the spice trade. So, so anyway, so that's 1600s now, all of a sudden everybody's coming over to the Caribbean. Um, sugar growing grew, increased, but it didn't grow dramatically until the mid 1600s. And the reason the mid-1600s was important is what I call the arrival of the big three. Coffee, tea, chocolate. Now, granted, the Spanish had had chocolate from as soon as they got to the New World, but they hadn't shared it with anybody. It had sort of leaked out by the mid-1600s. And the British, thankfully, came up with the idea that if you, because it was still a bitter drink in Spain, but the British added milk and sugar and went, you know, if you had milk and sugar, chocolate's really nice. So we can thank the British for hot chocolate. Um, so anyway, the British have created hot chocolate. Tea is coming from China. Coffee's coming from Africa. And they all have in common the one thing that they all need sugar. So suddenly, sugar production went up dramatically. Up until then, farming in the Caribbean had been kind of practical. You had a few pigs, you had a little farm for food. Once people could make money with sugar, once the demand grew, 
they basically in the Caribbean just leveled everything. They cut down the forests, they got rid of the pigs, they got rid of the farms, they just planted sugarcane from one uh, shore to the other. And so sugarcane became really, 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 you know, almost, almost overwhelming because it was taking over so much of the island. They weren't even growing food. They were just counting on the colonies to supply them with food. Now, just to give you some idea of how big the difference was, between 1665 and 30 years later, 1695, sugar exports from the Caribbean went from, well, and this is just the British ones, just, just going to Britain, went from 88 tons a year to 10,000 tons a year in 30 years. So 88 to 10,000 tons. Now, one of the things that happens when you make sugar is you end up with molasses. Molasses is a byproduct. Up until this point, it had been considered basically industrial waste. Um, but then with in Britain there in Barbados, the British, the British slaves to start out with were basically Scots and Irish. Anybody who was poor who owed money could be taken over as a slave or indentured servant to the Caribbean. And so Barbados initially was pretty much inhabited by rich people and you know, and basically poor Scots and Irish. Well, the other thing that Scots and Irish had in common back then, other than poverty, was they were both cultures that were very, very heavily into booze. So when they discovered that molasses began to ferment in the heat in the Caribbean, they went, hey, you know, if we build a still, we could distill this fermented molasses. Uh, worth noting, too, is before that, the molasses was just being thrown in the ocean. And it does make you wonder how many species of, of oceanic marine life just basically vanished because of 10,000 tons of molasses being thrown in the water every year. Um, but anyway, so at this point, the Irish and the Scots start turning the fermented molasses into booze. And it's possible that some of this happened in other places besides Barbados because everybody was growing sugar. Uh, but Barbados is the, is the place that figured out that this could be a real moneymaker. They were the ones that turned it into a giant industry. Um, like I said, the first distilled spirit of the new world, but they basically turned it into a cash cow. It was so identified with Barbados that in the 1700s, throughout the 1700s, Rum was known as Barbados liquor because that's basically who made it initially. Now, it was probably first distilled in 1630, which is just a couple of years after the British first arrived um, in Barbados. Um, anyway, it's just one of those things where, where it was like people were bored, people had time on their hands, and so they have all this fermented stuff. Now, the first mention of it in writing was 1650. Um, Interestingly, in 1651, I've always loved this comment, an anonymous note, uh, document noted, Rumbullion, alias Kill Devil, is the chief fuddling they make in the island. It is a hot, hellish, and terrible liquor made of sugar canes distilled. Now, this is the first time it's actually called rum, although Rumbullion is, is, rum is shortened for Rumbullion. And there are some people that dispute that this is the only possible way that the, the drink got its name, but since this is the first time it's ever been mentioned, 
in literature, it's like, okay, it's a good bet that this is the source. Rumbullion was actually a British slang word that meant great tumult, which seems appropriate for something. Now, one of the things worth noticing is that rum at the time was 160 proof. So that is so insanely high a proof. Now, for those, I don't know if everybody knows what proof means, but what proof is, is that when you wanted to show the alcohol content of something, you would pour alcohol on gunpowder, and if you could still light the gunpowder, that was your proof. That was your proof that it had alcohol in it. So you have the, the proof at 100, what we call 100 proof, which is 50% alcohol, you can light the gunpowder. Anything higher than 100, it becomes overproof. That's what they call it. So 160 is way overproof. That's almost pure alcohol. And that's what the rum was that they were producing there. Now, within 10 years of its first being produced, like I said, they had turned it into an industry. Now, one of the things worth mentioning is you may have noticed I've been talking a lot about Barbados and the British, and that's because rum is basically a British story. Um, Spain had Madeira, Portugal had Porto, uh, all of these other countries had, you know, you had cognac in France and wine. All these other countries had not only liquors and liqueurs, but they were all owned by aristocrats. And so they were all basically being protected. So the governments tended to crush any effort to monetize turning sugar into rum in islands that were not British. The British, on the other hand, were like, yippee, booze. And so they were actually delighted to create more and more options for making, you know, booze. So, so rum became a British story because everybody else was just trying to destroy the rum trade and the British didn't. So anyway, um, many people back then believed that alcohol was a cure-all and they used it for everything from, you know, malaria to, to homesickness. And in all, you know, in all fairness, we tend to think, oh, that was because they were idiots. But no, there was absolutely a visual, visible benefit to using alcohol. If you have a glass full of water and you don't know if the water is safe and you add a lot of alcohol, it will kill most of the germs. So there really was a definite benefit to alcohol. It just was, they got a little carried away because the main benefit they were looking for was, was oblivion. Now, almost from the start, there was a battle between people who wanted rum and people who didn't want rum. Um, Thomas Tennyson, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury in the late 1600s, described rum as destructive to nature, wasting the vitals, and an enemy of propagation. Um, granted, at 160 proof, you could also add lethal, uh, but it was basically, it was cheap. I mean, it was basically almost free because the, the molasses was being thrown out before they made rum. So, so your ingredients are completely free. And worth noting, too, this is the only alcohol in the world that is made from something that is not food. I mean, we consider it food now. They considered, considered it industrial waste. But, you know, vodka is made from potatoes and wine is made from grapes. And basically, rum was made from garbage. So it was a free ingredient. And so you made it for pennies. And you, everybody was making a, a huge profit on it. So, um, however, worth noting also is that, as it was described as a hot and hellish liqueur, that's probably an understatement. You probably cannot buy anything close to being as bad as that was. So, 
So something to be grateful for. Now, 1655 was important because that's when the British took Jamaica away from the Spanish. And uh, I don't think anybody is surprised to know that owning Jamaica made making more rum even easier. So all of a sudden they've got this, this huge island instead of little tiny Barbados, they've got a huge island that they can cover with sugarcane and start creating even more rum. This is the point in time when the British started getting a rum ration. Now it wasn't codified at this point, but pretty much everybody was giving rum to British sailors at this point. It was just, it was an easy way of keeping them happy, especially when you consider that almost all the sailors back then were not volunteers. They had what they called press gangs, which was people who needed uh, sailors would just go into a town and go to the bar and just say, okay, you're all in the Navy now. And the soldiers would round them up and put them on the boat and you were gone. So basically most of the people serving on ships back then had been kidnapped. So there was a lot of dissension and keeping them a little bit tipsy was probably a good way to keep people from revolting. So, so anyway, that's when the rum ration started. But the other thing to keep in mind is that guys in boats take things with them. And so pretty much everybody's being introduced to rum as these guys sail off with their kegs of rum. Um, now by the late 1600s, rum is the number one drink in both Britain and in the American colonies. In fact, it's become so popular in the American colonies that people begin to worry that, that people will forget how to make beer. Um, that was actually a genuine concern at the time. Now by 1671, there were distilleries in New, New York, Boston, and Philadelphia. Um, the rum though that was being produced in all those distilleries was never as good as that from the islands. The heat in the islands makes a difference. In, in making rum, but it was cheaper. And it was also, you know, it was an easy way to get more rum because you just traded, you know, molasses if you didn't have enough people making rum in the islands. So anyway, while it's primarily a British making rum, everybody's making a lot of money. And what happens when you make a lot of money? Bad guys pay attention. And this is where pirates come in. So this is one of our little threads going off is the history of pirates. Um, pirates, of course, are as old as boats. I think a week after the first boat, there was probably a pirate. So, by, and we still have pirates today. I also saw that Tom Hanks movie off the coast of Somalia. So, pirates have always been around. But if you say pirates, pretty much everybody's thinking pirates of the Caribbean. The first thing that come to mind is, you know, Johnny Depp. Um, so, anyway, there was a golden age of piracy, and it actually began in 1690. And uh, that's, I mean, that was, that was when you had that sort of coming together of lots of people with boats, lots of people with money, and lots of people with rum. Now, there are a lot of blurry lines at this point, too, from the standpoint of who, what was a pirate. There were heroes, there were criminals, there were freedom fighters, there were privateers. A privateer is basically a pirate who's working for a government. So, like a British privateer, like Captain Morgan, was a pirate only if you happen to be Spanish or French, but he was a hero if you were British. Um, so you had privateers. Um, buccaneers, we know the term buccaneers, that actually comes from cooking rather than from being a pirate uh, because the Carib had a way of preparing meat that they called boucan. And boucan was a greenwood lattice that you put over a smoky fire and cook things very slowly. Um, it's considered to be one of the sources, likely sources of barbecue, but boucan, 
the guys, a lot of the sailors got really good at bouquin. They became so good at bouquin that the French started referring to them as les boucaniers. And of course, les boucaniers, when the British got a hold of it, became buccaneers. So basically, a Weber kettle makes you a buccaneer. Um, so anyway, besides that, you also have freedom fighters who are trying to take over ships and free the slaves and just all sorts of different things. But of course, you have the serious criminals. You've got the Captain Kidd, the Anne Bonny, the Blackbeard, the Mary Reed, the Black Bart. So lots and lots of people who are really dangerous. And that was really cutting down on trade. It was making travel dangerous. People were dying. So they wanted to stop that. So from 1690, and then you have 1720 is when all the governments of the world decided, let's stop fighting each other for a few weeks and stop the pirates. So there were two main source sites for piracy. One was Port Royal in Jamaica, and the other was uh, Newport, Rhode Island. In fact, Rhode Island was so rife with crime at that time, it was frequently known as Rogue Island. So, so you have the pirates, main you know, seats of piracy there. And so the governments just went in, cleaned them out, and stopped piracy. Basically, they were either sent home, or they were hanged, or their boats were sunk or taken over. And so piracy was over. So, so the golden age of, of piracy in the Caribbean was just 30 years. And you think, well, 30 years, how could it have been so memorable to us? How could we have so many ideas of, of piracy and, and so many images of piracy? And of course, that's because of a sickly guy over, sickly Scotsman, 100 years later, who fell in love with the stories of the pirates. And that sickly young man was named Robert Louis Stevenson. And Robert Louis Stevenson wrote Treasure Island. And Treasure Island is not only why we think of rum in association with pirates, it's also why we think pirates all have Cornish accents. Um, Cornwall, Cornwall was a hotbed of piracy, but there were an awful lot of other places. In fact, Cornwall, I mean, Jamaica and Pirates of Penzance, a lot of association with pirates in Cornwall. So that R.R.V. Long John Silver is legitimate, but there were also French pirates and Spanish pirates and Dutch pirates. So, so you have Robert Louis Stevenson writing that now. One of the things that he sort of fell in love with was the name of this one island in the Virgin Islands called Dead Chest Island. And he went, Dead Chest Island, Dead Chest, Dead Chest, 16 men on a dead man's chest. Yo ho ho and a bottle of rum. So a sailor may have said something like yo ho heave ho when pulling up the anchor, but no pirate ever said yo ho ho and a bottle of rum. That's just Robert Louis Stevenson. So, so that's sort of like why, you know, it's just sort of a similar situation to why cowboys are so iconic. Very short time of period, but lots of literature. And so that has made it memorable. And the same thing with pirates. Now, because of the pirates, a lot of manufacturers, a lot of towns, a lot of distillers would hand out free or cheap rum to the navies of the world because that would keep the ships nearby. As long as you were handing rum out to the navies, you would have a ship nearby that was armed and dangerous and would be dissuading pirates from attacking. So that was pretty much where the whole idea of the rum ration is anchored. And rum rations is the next sort of theme. Um, it was 17, well, 1655 is when they started drinking it, but 1731 is when the British Navy officially established a daily rum tot. Um, 
for all hands. It was a half a pint a day. Now this is a British pint, so this is this is 10 ounces of 160 proof rum. And it was divided into what they called tots, two tots. You got five ounces at lunch and five ounces at dinner. So it's like five cocktails at lunch, five cocktails at dinner for all hands on deck. And it's 160 proof. Then in 1740, a gentleman named Admiral Edward Vernon, a name worth remembering, a, a remarkable man. Um, he was one of those guys who actually believed that sailors were human and should be treated decently and should worry about their health and taking care of them and everything else. And uh, so that was, that was considered pretty remarkable. I mean, a lot of, of upper class sorts thought that that was, was silly, that you wouldn't you know, waste your time with, with all these peasants. But he actually took care of all of his sailors. Now, one of the ways he wanted to take care of them is he noticed, you know, 160 proof rum. One of the problems is that it's very close to a lethal amount of rum. So very often what would happen is like somebody would have a birthday and everybody would pitch in a little of their rum to give him a little bit of a gift. And then the guy just never woke up again. So they lost a lot of sailors to overdosing on that 160 proof rum. So Edward Vernon came up with the idea of mixing the rum with water. And he mixed it about 50-50. But because water that's been in a barrel for a couple of months doesn't taste very good, he also added sugar and lime juice which would make it nice and, and flavorful. Interestingly enough, all of a sudden his sailors are healthier than other sailors. And it was his adding the lime juice that led to Dr. Lind looking into citrus fruit as being a source of something that would keep you well. Um, it's, they called it ascorbic acid, and that's what you have in citrus fruit. And the reason they called it ascorbic is anything that was antiscorbutic meant it was against scurvy. And if you sort of smush antiscorbutic down, it becomes ascorbic. So basically, it was an acid that would prevent scurvy. And so limes were all of a sudden um, considered very important. Now, other, other sailors or other, other admirals would frequently keep the limes for themselves because why would you spend that kind of money on, on peasants? Um, but, but Vernon kept doing that. Now, one of the things that's kind of fun is that Edward Vernon um, wore a long coat made of a fabric called gragram. And gragram is a combination of mohair and silk. And it's very water resistant and very nice, but because of his gragram coat, he was known as Old Grog. And so when he started watering down the rum and adding the lime and sugar, the sailors referred to it as Old Grog's rum, and eventually just grog. So basically we get our word grog, Navy grog from watered down rum from and Admiral Vernon with his grogroom coat. Now, because he treated everybody so well, one of his young uh, officers, Lawrence Washington, um, was terribly impressed and took a lot of cues from how he treated people. And when he inherited the family estate, he named it for the Admiral. And that's where Mount Vernon got its name, is from Admiral Edward, Edward Vernon. So anyway, 1795, the British Navy was finally making orders about giving everybody lime juice. Interestingly, I think this is kind of fun because this is actually stuff you can find now at the, at the grocery store. Um, 1867, a Scotsman named Lachlan Rose developed a way of bottling fruit juice without it spoiling. And if you've ever bought Mr. Rose's lime juice at the liquor store or in the grocery store, that's what he invited in 1867. He designed the bottle that is still used today for Rose's lime juice. 
1867 is when we got Rose's Lime Juice, and that is actually when the British sailors became limeys because bottled lime juice made it possible for the British to give everybody lime juice all the time. So basically, nice, nice little touch from the, the Scots there. Um, that's when they became known as limeys. So a long history of rum, rum and, and, uh, and lime juice, too. And that's one of the things that always amuses me is when people say, who invented the daiquiri? I'll say, well, I think Edward Vernon invented the daiquiri, but the guy who gets credit is the one who added ice. So anyway, Americans, of course, had a rum ration as long as they were still British. But then once we revolted against the British, uh, we lost our rum ration from the British, obviously. And so there was no government to give a rum ration. So basically, officers had to buy booze for their people largely to keep them from deserting because that was considered such an important part of what they got now um, of, of their, you know, being paid. Now, then you have 1832, Andrew Jackson decided that Americans are all volunteers, so you don't have to keep them tipsy. And so he also basically, Calvin, um, what was it? It was, yeah, John C. Calhoun also pointed out that he thought that the alcohol was bad for people. He was the Surgeon General at the time. So between the two of them in 1832, they ended the rum ration uh, in, in America, in the American military. Um, but they did something interesting. They raised the pay so that you could buy rum if you wanted it. But then they introduced something that was even more valuable than rum at the time, and that's coffee. And it's one of the reasons we became great coffee drinkers is because everybody who served in the military ended up drinking coffee instead of their rum ration. Now. The British didn't get rid of the rum ration. That was 1832. The British didn't get rid of the rum ration until 1970. And the reason they got rid of it then is because that was shortly after the invention of the breathalyzer. So they would be getting off their boat, off their big ships after the uh, daily tot of rum, and they started testing them as they would head for their cars. And they're like, no, you can't, you can't drive home because you're completely hammered. And so they thought, well, if they can't drive home, why are we letting them operate these huge, enormous ships with millions of dollars of equipment and weapons? And so that's when they decided to get rid of it. They actually, the, the Navy called it Black Tot Day, which is the last day they had their last tot. And they wore black armbands and they were, you know, in mourning. And they actually said a lot of the old salts actually retired after that because they just weren't going to bother being in the Navy if they couldn't have their two tots a day of rum. So 1970 is when the Navy got rid of it. Um, now today, what's one is if you go to the, at the store, you may find, or the liquor store, you may find something on the, uh, in the liquor aisle or in the rum aisle called Pusser's Rum. And Pusser's is a corruption of the word purser, purser, because that's who used to give out the rum. And so the Pusser's, the Pusser's Rum is actually a recreation of the blend of five rums that was the official rum of the British Navy. So if you want to know what their rum tasted like, uh, you, can, you can try that. Um, now, another bit of, of lingo that came from that time period too, though, is that the, the tots were always ladled out of a large barrel. Now in the Navy, British Navy, they called that barrel a butt. And if you take something out of service, for what it's normally used for, it has been scuttled. So this was a scuttled butt. And so everybody would be standing around talking while they were getting their rum ration out of the scuttle butt. 
And so that's basically why we got the word scuttlebutt as being a, a term for um, trivia or gossip or the latest news or whatever. So we got it from the rum ration as well. Now, to this day, rum is more common in bars in England along the coasts, anywhere that there would be boats, uh, than any other alcohol. Even in Scotland, where they make scotch, they have rum if you're on, in a port area, just because all those old sailors. I suspect that will change as we lose more and more of the people who were still drinking that rum on, for, at the government's expense in 1970. But anyway, trade was another thing. Um, trade was, was absolutely necessary for rum. You could make rum in the Caribbean, but since they had gotten rid of all of their farms and everything, they didn't have any food. So they had to trade to get food. The people who were making rum in the New England had to get molasses. Uh, of course, by this point in time, unfortunately, they also are needing the slaves to help work in the, the fields because they've run out of uh, poor Irish and Scots to do it to. So you've got huge amount of trade going on. You've got the slave trade, you've got the, the rum trade, you've got the molasses trade. They're also trading things for rum because rum was such a key item of trade. I mean, it was basically, if you wanted to get fabric, bolts of fabric from England, you bought it with rum. You bought slaves with rum. You bought everything. And interestingly enough, the British actually did not allow Americans to have British coins. They didn't want real money leaving the country. And so rum actually became the de facto currency. So it became of the new world. So it was basically, trade was absolutely inevitable. Um, it was everywhere. Now, one of the things I think is really ironic is that the British thought that if Americans made too much money, they wouldn't need the British anymore. And so that was, their idea was they would tax the Americans to keep them dependent on Britain. And it's like, wow, did that ever backfire? Um, now, anyway, one of the things that was interesting too is that taverns were becoming increasingly important. Taverns were a good place to meet people. They were a good place, and taverns weren't just bars. They had hotels, hotel rooms, they had meeting rooms. Um, pretty much everybody met in taverns. In fact, in New England, you could not charter a town without a tavern because you had to have some place for the circuit riding judge to stay when he came to your town. And so taverns were an absolute necessity in growing towns. And they became so popular. One of my favorite ones is Francis Tavern in New York, which you can actually still go to, became so common a place for revolutionaries to gather after the American Revolution, it actually became um, the site of the Department of Foreign Affairs, the War Department, and the Treasury Department after the um, American Revolution, because we didn't have government buildings yet. So, so it wasn't just guys hanging out and having a drink at the taverns. It was also the government after the American Revolution was run from a tavern. Now, by the 1720s, like I said, people were actually beginning to worry that they would forget how to make beer because it was so popular. Anyway, the British, oh, another thing is worth mentioning, British coins, there were coins other than British coins that were showing up, and those, one of the most popular ones was one from Austria. It was a heavy silver coin called the Taller. So if, in case you're wondering why we ended up with something other than a pound, it was because the Austrians let us have currency. And until 1857, interesting, I just learned this recently, until 1857, pretty much everybody with a store in the United States had a little scale 
because you could spend any coin from anywhere in the world in the United States until 1857 because all the coins used to be made of metals that had intrinsic value. If you had an ounce of silver or an ounce of gold from Austria or from Spain or from anywhere, it was still an ounce of gold. And so people actually would accept coins from anywhere. And the most popular one was the taller. So anyway, the yeah, uh, like I said, the negative side was the increase in slavery and slave labor. And I think this is kind of interesting to us. Um, I always say it's a sure sign of the importance of rum is when it starts entering any anything, actually, when it starts entering literature. And William Cowper was a poet and an abolitionist and uh, wrote this poem when he was uh, working with William Wilberforce to end slavery uh, in the New World, or I mean, in basically in the entire British Empire. And uh, I think this sort of reveals the limits of morality in regards to slavery in 1788. The poem is titled Pity for Poor Africans. And Cowper writes, I own I am shocked at the purchase of slaves and fear those who buy them and sell them are knaves. What I hear of their hardship, their tortures, their groans is almost enough to draw pity from stones. I pity them greatly, but I must be mum for how could we do without sugar and rum? So that was, he was being sarcastic. He was saying basically people were willing to allow slavery because they were so eager to get their rum. Now, fortunately, because of Wilberforce, and if you ever saw the movie Amazing Grace, it's about his fight against slavery. But Wilberforce trafficking in slaves was abolished in Britain by 1806 and throughout the empire by 1833. Now, interestingly, one of the things that happened after slavery was outlawed, uh, outlawed in the British Empire is they started bringing over workers from India because there were lots and lots of people there who were looking for jobs, which interestingly led to production increasing. They had improved production once they had free people working, which a lot of us who like the idea of being free appreciate. It's also one of the reasons why like the national dish of Jamaica is, is a curry, a goat curry. Now, that's trade. The next one is taxes. As I mentioned, the British thought that they needed to tax the money because Americans were just getting all too much, altogether too rich. And so they really wanted to slow stuff down. They really wanted to make us more dependent. They also seriously believed that the only reason the colonies existed was for the benefit of Britain. I mean, basically the whole idea of us taking care of ourselves was completely anathema to the king and, and parliament. Um, but another thing that was a problem is that you had all of these guys down in the Caribbean who were pretty much lords and uh, high-placed people and wealthy people from wealthy families. Um, they weren't being taxed at all, and they had representatives in parliament. So everybody in the Caribbean growing the sugar and making the molasses and the rum had representatives in parliament, but they were powerful enough that they could just say, no, don't tax us. Why don't you tax those people on the mainland? They're all kind of worthless anyway. So that's one of the reasons why the no taxation without representation was such an insult is that all of these people in the Caribbean were not paying taxes because they were represented and they depended entirely on the colonies for their food. So it's like, you'll die without us and yet you're going to hurt us. So, so anyway, that was, that was a real issue for the colonists. So it wasn't just about the taxes. It was about the, the insult. It was about the fact that the people in the islands were not paying taxes. Um, so it was just absolutely unsupportable. 
So anyway, the um, that's one of the reasons why, because I was remembered as a kid thinking, why would you have a molasses act and why would you have a sugar act? Why would they be making all, it didn't make sense to me when I was younger, but of course, if you know how important rum is, you know that the molasses was coming in for the rum. And so it was hugely important. So taxes on molasses, the tax was on anything that came from a non-British source. And so that was one of the things that was hard because of course the British were making rum, whereas the French were still throwing out the molasses. So French molasses was essentially free. So nobody wanted to buy British molasses. They wanted to get free molasses from the French. So anyway, huge amount of um, smuggling started up. Everybody got around paying the molasses tax. They would go to other sources. So anyway, that was not working well. So, um, and they, the huge amount of molasses was needed because it, by 1750, Massachusetts alone had 63 distilleries. And so anyway, so smuggling was big. Um, I thought this was kind of fun. In 1763, out of 14,000 hogsheads of molasses brought into New England, only about 5% came from legal sources. Um, and a hogshead is 63 gallons. So we're talking a lot of boot, uh, molasses coming in. So anyway, so that's why in 1764, the British passed the Sugar Act. And the Sugar Act basically put British soldiers in port to search ships, to make sure nothing was coming in illegally, to arrest people, to send them to Canada for trial if they had any rum or, or sugar that they weren't supposed to have. Um, this is actually when Sam Adams, people always think it's the tea, but this is when Sam Adams said, no taxation without representation. So it was about the rum. In fact, President John Adams would later say, I know not why we should blush to confess that molasses were an essential ingredient in American independence. Many great events have proceeded from much smaller causes. So back then, everybody understood it was about the molasses. Now, of course, you know what happened. I mean, you have the, the that, you go to the intolerable acts, you go to the housing people in people's homes, you go to all sorts of arrests, arrests um, finally revolution. What are the British going to do? Not only have they lost the colonies, but they've lost their source of, of huge amounts of resources, trees and all sorts of things that they need for building their ships and everything else. But even more important to them, they lost their dumping ground for riffraff because that was one of the ways that, that England dealt with poverty and crime back then, petty crime, is they would just put them on a ship and ship them to America. Um, so fortunately for England, 1770, Captain James Cook had found Australia and surveyed it. So that's one of the reasons why, well, that's the major reason why Britain then immediately after the American Revolution went to Australia, because they needed not only a place to get trees, but they also needed a place to dump the riffraff. And so that's also one of the reasons why if you listen to Australian country music, it sounds just like American country music, is it was pretty much all the same people. The Irish, the Scots, the Celts, the various Celtic groups that, so it all sounds pretty similar to our country music because it was in fact from the same people groups. So anyway, so Australia comes, it gets over there. And Australia of course has Queensland, which is a lot like the Caribbean in weather. And so pretty soon there's a huge sugar industry and a huge rum trade. But of course the rum, they don't want rum. They don't, they did this, they made exactly the same mistakes they made in the United States. Didn't allow them to have money. So the rum starts to become in place of money and 
eventually they have the Rum Rebellion. Interestingly enough, what happened first before the Rum Rebellion is that the British had sent a strict disciplinarian over to stop everything that was happening, to stop all of those annoying people who were making money from illegal rum. And the strict disciplinarian they picked was William Bly, uh, the same one as, as the bounty uh, a few years later. And it was, he was just as successful in Australia as he was on the bounty. Uh, within a few weeks of being the governor of Australia, he was arrested by uh, the military there because they were all involved in the rum trade. And it wasn't until Lachlan Macquarie, another Scotsman, came down and said, oh, look, let's make money, let's get land, let's make rum legal, that the rum trade started up there. And today, um, Australia is number two after the Caribbean for producing rum. So there's, uh, you go to the Caribbean and then Australia is second. So that was really big. Now, after the American Revolution, even though we stopped having access to the rum from Barbados, we still wanted rum, and we were still buying molasses from wherever we could. Um, it, when 1789, George Washington requested an entire barrel of rum at his inauguration. Uh, interestingly enough, that's the same year that bourbon was first made, and this would suddenly become kind of a competition between bourbon and rum in the New World. Um, because as people moved further from the coast, access to molasses became more difficult, access to corn became a lot easier. So you've got everybody making corn liquor as opposed to making rum. Now at first, they wanted to discourage that because there were so many people in New England making money off of rum that they put strict laws or heavy taxes on bourbon to keep people from competing with all of these rum manufacturers in, in, um, in New England. But then Thomas Jefferson came along and he was making some bourbon and he decided that we should get rid of the taxes on bourbon. And so the taxes were lifted. Um, there was a whiskey rebellion in there. I mean, it was one of those things where out booze continued to be a big issue. Now, George Washington in 1798 actually began making his own whiskey. Interestingly enough, one of the things that he created, aside from a whiskey distillery, was the very first completely self-contained process where you went in with the grain and you came out on the other end with bottled product. Up until then, they would put it in barrels and then somebody else would bottle it later. So here it was basically Washington came up with that. And just to give you an idea of how much people were, were drinking back then, you had 600 gallons the first year, 4,500 gallons the second year, 11,000 gallons by the third year. And who knows how big it would have gotten if he had, hadn't died. Um, so anyway, in 1831, an Irishman named Aeneas Coffey came up with the very first column still. Now, up until then, all booze was made in a pot still, which was like the old Arab alambic, you know, where you sort of have it curving around and you boil it one pot at a time. Now, most of your premium rums will still be made that way because you have more distinctive flavor, you have more control. The column still basically just turns out alcohol, but you can run it without stopping. You don't have to clean it out or anything else. So, so the amount of alcohol you can produce is astronomically greater. So of course, the amount of alcohol being made went up dramatically. Now, one of the things too is whiskey is still growing too, and whiskey is beginning to edge out rum by this point. Um, but all of a sudden then, they, they kind of become partners because all of that whiskey is being aged in barrels and rum is all still white. And so basically what they did is they took all of those 
whiskey barrels, would burn out the inside to sterilize them, and then would put the rum into the whiskey barrels. And that's the first time you have rum that's not white. You have the golden rum, the dark rum. They started aging the rum. This is when it stops being rot gut and starts actually being a polished drink. This is the 1800s is when they started trying to turn it into something a little more civilized. Okay, not sure what that was. Anyway, um, but New England by this point is becoming concerned about the staggering consumption of alcohol. Uh, people are drinking it pretty close to a lethal amount of alcohol all the time, and it's getting to be a real problem. Companies are offering you know huge insurance discounts on, on ships that will not take alcohol on board. Um, one great disaster, and I think this is another photograph worth showing, was called the uh, Great Molasses Flood. Okay, before I do the screen share, I'll just read some of the statistics. You've probably heard the saying about as slow as molasses in January. Well, how slow is molasses in January if it's a warm January? In 1919, the Purity Distilling Company, so this is just one distillery and just one tank, but it held 2.3 million gallons of molasses. And on a warm day, the molasses started to ferment. And with a huge roar, a great tank ruptured shot bolts and sheet metal in all directions, and a 20-foot wave of molasses roared through town at 35 miles an hour. And here's the, the picture, I think, worth sharing. Share. You can see how a lot of people died. 21 dead, 150 injured, horses drowned, buildings lifted off their foundations, trains knocked off the tracks, so. Cynthia, what town is that? Boston. Thank you. You bet. So anyway, I just thought that one was worth showing. I don't think there's a lot of them that require a picture, but uh, I thought that was pretty astonishing. They, the legend is that you can still smell the molasses if you're in Boston. I don't think so, but um, anyway, just it was one of those things where it was kind of the final the last hurrah, the thing that proved to a lot of people that we really did need prohibition, um, whether one agrees with that or not, it was still astonishing amount of, of alcohol being consumed. Like I said, the average American, where was it? I have to, well, they, 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 they actually considered, when they considered alcohol consumption, they started at age 15. And people were drinking gallons and gallons and gallons of alcohol every year. So. Anyway, prohibition ended most of the rum making in New England. It didn't end all of it because you were allowed to make it for medicine. And of course, you were allowed to make your own if you wanted to make it at home. Um, it didn't prohibit making alcohol. It just prohibited selling it as, you know, as a commodity. Now, another side note is this was prohibition, regardless of what you think of it, was people will frequently say things like, oh, that's because of the um, Protestant Reformation or something. And it's like, no, it's not. It was a progressive issue. It was something the progressives wanted. There was a huge amount of problem. I thought this was interesting. It was also an, a feminist issue. That's one of the reasons, if you look at the histories of, of, of um, Susan B. Anthony and, and all of the other great feminists of that time, they all started out in temperance because there was no place for women to go. There was no way out 
if your husband was drinking all the time. And there was a popular song of the era called Father's a Drunkard and Mother is Dead, which gives you some idea what the sentiment was. Um, even, even with very few cars, drunk driving was already an issue in 1900. So it was just one of those things. And it was not the only country. U.S. was not the only country. Now, prohibition did have a huge impact. I mean, you may think people drink a lot today, but it's still less than one third of what people were drinking before prohibition. But the other important thing besides prohibition was modern medicine, because up until the time of prohibition, pretty much everybody still thought of alcohol as being the thing you did to recover from disease. In fact, when the British were going around uh, the world in India, if you, if you were a sailor and refused to drink your rum, you could be punished because you were, you were spreading disease because that's what they considered the most important way to fend off uh, cholera. Um, now, the other thing that happened is because everybody went to, for alcohol at lunch in all the big cities, they were given free food if they were going to be drinking. And suddenly all of these workers in all the big cities across the United States don't have some place to go for lunch. And so the um, companies, the, the companies that used to be serving alcohol would start serving root beer and water and then selling the sandwiches rather than giving them away for free. So this was actually kind of the beginning of the rise of fast food. Uh, was the idea of you're being able to go out and just buy all of these simple dishes. Um, now, rum elsewhere, not too surprisingly, the British went everywhere. They took rum, and it, pretty much anybody who could grow sugarcane uh, was soon growing it. Um, in Hawaii, the British claimed the islands in the mid-1800s, and King Kamehameha liked rum immediately and uh, wouldn't let them leave until they taught him how to make it. And so the, rum, the Hawaiians make their own rum, and Hawaiian cocktails all taste slightly different because of the Hawaiian rum. And for what it's worth, a Mai Tai is not a Hawaiian drink. It's a California drink. Newfoundland, I loved this. When I was in Newfoundland, I found out about this. Newfoundland has always had a strong connection with New England. So they actually have a strong connection with rum production. Newfoundland still makes overproof rum called Screech. Um, Newfoundland was actually an independent country before World War II. It's, it has the dubious distinction of being the only country in the world to give up its independence in the 20th century, but it sued after World War II. It was, it was, its boats were all gone and it was a mess financially, so it's, it asked to be part of Canada. And now Canada had strict laws about overproof rum, so the Newfies were like, no, we have to have our overproof rum. It's, it's what we do is we have screech. We drink overproof rum. And so it's like the only country in the world that has um, rum, overproof rum in their Articles of, of Confederation. So anyway, one of the other ones, another country where, where it became an issue was Cuba. February 4th, 1862 in Santiago de Cuba, a gentleman named Don Facundo Bacardi started making rum. And Spain was still in charge of Cuba at that time and still trying to crush enterprise and trying to keep control. So Bacardi was in jail and out of jail and in jail and out of jail, and he eventually died, but his son took over, had the secret recipe, made rum. By this point in time, we're walking towards the um, Spanish-American War, and we've got liberation. The Americans go down there. The Americans bring one of the new drinks that they have, which is, of course, Coca-Cola, and you've got rum and Coca-Cola all of a sudden. So 
Now, interestingly enough, unlike America, and I should say rum and coke is known as a Cuba Libra, which means a free Cuba. So that's, it celebrates freedom for Cuba. Um, there's also an American engineer over in Daiquiri who invented a drink, and I'll let you guess which one that was. Um, anyway, so unlike the U.S. and Australia, rum didn't lead to revolution. It had to run ahead of revolution and escape before the, the communists took over. And so they, they went to, uh, Bacardi went to Puerto Rico and then to, um, his main one was Puerto Rico at the time, and then to Bermuda. And so it's one of those things where it's today, and this is not necessarily promoting Bacardi, it's just that it's interesting to know that it is the largest producer of rum in the world. So that is almost never a sign that something is going to be your best bet, but it is cheap and it's reliable. And so it's, it's not a gourmet rum, but it is inexpensive. And I think one of this is one of my favorite factoids. Um, well, they, they ship more than 19 million cases uh, a year. But I love the fact that they use like 80,000 gallons a day. Well, this is, they have to, in order to keep the proof the same for every bottle, they have to wash the bottles with rum. And they use 80,000 gallons of rum a year just for rinsing bottles. So anyway, countries with sugarcane tried to, or without sugarcane, tried to make rum, but the EU and the US got together and said, no, it has to be sugarcane or it can't be called rum. So anyway, that's the history of rum. And if you do look at the recipes that I offered you, um, you'll see the rum punch and the uh, hot buttered rum. And the rum punch, the thing I think is kind of fun, is the word punch is actually a Hindi word that means five things. Because originally that was what you made a punch with, was five things. Tea, citrus, sugar, water, and alcohol. And now it's obviously, if you look at the recipe, you'll see that it's become a lot more you know, complex than that. Um, but that was the original. So anyway, rum was, was important. Everybody liked rum. And like I said, leading economic indicator for 300 years. Um, any questions? Ah, Sugarloaf Lane. They can unmute themselves to ask a question. Okay. When I have a question. Okay. When uh, when the when the sailors were getting their rations, their toddies, did they just get them in a cup, expecting them to drink it immediately, or did they get it in a container that they could? No, they got it in a cup. There was a specific metal here. I'll give you one image. It's the. Uh, of the last tot, and you'll see the cups, the official cup for oh. it. Oh, wow. And you can see that nobody in the back row looks happy. Happy. <laughs> <laughs> but this is 1970. People are all dressed uh, in different co costumes, costumes to represent the time period. The different time periods of the British Navy. But, uh, but this was in 1970, and so that was the final tot, the Black Tot Day. The, the day that they got their last hot, but that was what the cup was like. You would have it ladled. That's there's your scuttled butt, your uh, your drum, your your barrel, and then they would just ladle it in. They didn't want you storing it up because if it was lethal, it you know if it was that close to lethal with just the tot that you were getting, you didn't want to store it up and increase the likelihood of everybody dying. And it's funny. I keep looking at the shoulder of the one guy with the the sort of crescent-shaped hat, and the where his epaulette hits the guy behind him, it makes him look like that creature from Pirates of the Caribbean where it's got the <laughs> octopus face. Anyway. That's so, probably. Cynthia, 
So, Cynthia, what rum do you recommend if if Bacardi isn't at the top of your list? Well, I actually, I mean, I'm I'm one of those ones that falls into the category of the latest trend. I mean, the latest, biggest trend in the last 20 years has been flavored rums. I like things like, I like Captain Morgan. Um, I'm not, I'm not a rum connoisseur. I'm a historian and I like, I like rum because of its history. Um, I will say too, if anyone's interested in reading more, this is a great book. There are a lot of books on rum out there, but I have found that an awful lot of them are just riddled with errors. Where's the author's name? There we go. Wayne Curtis. Uh, fun, fun writing. Um, he pretty much just covers the United States. He doesn't go to Australia and Newfoundland like I did, but he uh, covers the United States and it's just a dandy um, book about if you want more. I mean, it includes things like what Captain Morgan looked like towards the end of his life as opposed to the dashing picture you see on the bottle. You know, they were talking about his you know wasted legs and his eyes being completely yellow. And I'm like, don't think he has a liver anymore. Um, so anyway, that's a fun book if you want more information. You wonder about corn and pigs. I have books about that, but uh, but rum, I think Wayne Curtis's is the best one you can get. This, like I said, I found serious problems with some of the other books I read, and not just opinion problems. I mean things like the year Jamestown was founded. You know things like that, where it's like, no, that's not that's not an opinion. You know that's 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 a specific date. So anyway, um, as far as recommending rum, whatever tastes good to you. Uh, when I use, I tend to use. If I'm using Bacardi, I'll use it just because it's not terribly expensive and it's great in hot buttered rum. Because yeah, I, I tend not to drink rum neat, I t- unless it's Captain Morgan and, and it's you know, spiced or flavored in some way. So, so yeah, just think of, think of me as history, not as an as alcohol connoisseur. Cynthia, can I ask you about the, about the sugar? Yeah. Time I've seen something where they take the stalks and they and they get the the juice out of them and then they they heat it and they add a thickener and all that. What comes out is a brown jaggery. It doesn't come out to be white sugar like you showed in those. Well, you have you have to be you have to process it. You have to filter it. You have to. I mean, it's like I've been through the sugar plantations in Australia, and you mm-hmm. watch them and they take. You know, there's a huge amount of like filtering and centrifuging and getting rid of um, oh. impurities. I mean, it's all the stuff that makes molasses look like molasses. If you take out, if you leave the molasses in sugar, instead of taking it out, all of sugar would be that brown. Okay, okay. Because I've seen it mostly with somebody in their backyard actually making it. Not a- Absolutely. Yeah, no, you okay. can do that. And I mean, sugar... And sugarcane tastes great on its own. Just split yes. it open and chew the inside. Mm-hmm. But it you tastes more like molasses. That's the thing, is it tastes like molasses because all the molasses stuff is still, still in there. It's still there. Okay. Uh, I, can I make a comment? Sure. Um, the Great Molasses Flood of Boston. During World War I, molasses was used in explosives. It was a key ingredient, and that's why that tank was built, and that's why the molasses was being stored there. It was used in gunpowder and explosives. Well, it may have been used then as well, but 1919, there is a well-documented, I mean, because you look at that picture I showed you, that was not a picture that dates to 
World War, what was it, World one. War One? I. I mean, that was that was pretty much an earlier picture. Now that the book, the Great Molasses Flood, goes into it in great detail. Oh, I see. That's right. If it was after World War One, right? Yeah, that would have been nineteen nineteen. Well, right. it's still. I mean, but it was, it was largely used for rum. It may have been used for the other two, but there were sixty three rum distilleries just in Massachusetts, so they may have used some of it for explosives. Yeah, yeah. yeah that particular tank, though, was that's what it was used for, and they made the tank wrong. Okay. And that's why it gave way. Okay. It's a fascinating book. It's well, called I knew it was I knew it was made poorly. Yeah. Because that's why they said bullets were shooting and everything all or not bullets, t- bolts and and yeah. sheet metal. Mm-hmm. And one of the saddest ones is it leaked badly and there were kids that would go every day to collect the molasses mm-hmm. that was seeping out. Yeah. Yeah. And some of them were amongst the first to die when it exploded. But there is a book on the, on the flood and the lawsuits that followed Okay. as a result of it. And I believe it's called The Great Molasses Flood. Okay. So if anybody's interested, just love, thought I'd mention it. Okay. Well, it's interesting to know. I mean, it's amazing how many things can be used for multiple purposes. You know, like, for instance, uh, Muscle Shoals was making ammonia for you know, explosives, but it was also really helping the farmers because it's a real boon to, to farming because it's, it's a great fertilizer. And of course, today, if you go out and buy fertilizer, you can use it to make explosives. So, so the, the, the British, through uh, World Wars One and Two, were giving all their sailors alcohol every day. That's what I said, 1970. Right, I'm just, and that's, they were probably the only Army to be, Navy to be doing that. Yeah. Didn't they ever think that maybe there's something wrong with that? Well, not until 1970 when they had the breathalyzer. That's when they figured it out. <laughs> I mean, and, and people quit when they couldn't get rum anymore. So I think it was just a, still considered a big draw. Huh. It didn't impede their ability to function. Well, and I suspect when you're like under attack, you don't <laughs> drink and you wait till after the attack. But uh, but yes, they were still they were still, at least in in peacetime in 1970 when they were coming off the ship, they were all pretty well inebriated. Funny. <laughs> I, I don't know when you read when you read the amount of alcohol that Americans drank in the colonial period and the 19th century before uh, there was such a, a move to temperance. It's just uh, I mean you. Given that the water could kill you under yeah. any circumstances, so there were some good reasons for drinking alcohol. But you know, starting with a couple of tankards of hard cider in the morning, yeah, um, they must have been half smashed all the time and somehow have functioned. No kidding, you know, they uh, either that or they somehow built a tolerance for it. Well, I think you learn how to do it. But here's here's some of the government figures from 1790. 1790 government figures showed the annual per capita alcohol consumption for everyone over the age of 15 amounted to 34 gallons of beer and cider, five gallons of distilled spirits, and one gallon of wine. So that's a lot of booze. And one of the things that's in my corn lecture that I mentioned is, too, is like by this point in time, by by the mid-1800s, Peoria had become the whiskey capital of the world, and they were making, what, I think it was 186,000 gallons of, of whiskey a day. Illinois? Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, Peoria, actually Peoria made so much whiskey that taxes on whiskey from Peoria was 50% of the federal budget. Yeah. Wow. Which is why a whole lot of new taxes had to be introduced right after prohibition started because 50% is a substantial amount. So in one of those unintended consequences. Yes. Absolutely. So in the chat, there's quite a debate about very, I shouldn't say debate, uh, a number of uh, ideas on what is a good rum. So I'll put that, you know. Yeah, I'm seeing that too. Idea. That sounds like fun. Right. And then uh, Jose Aram, he said he, had, I think the teeth of uh, British sailors in the 1960s were not in great shape. No. But that was, uh, but anyway, yes, no, there are some very lovely rums. I, I mean, if I needed a good rum, I'd just go over to Penny's and ask them what the best one is they have, you know. Although I can usually tell just by looking at it going, I can't afford this one. It must be good. <laughs> are there any other questions? Scott, are you there? I sure am. Can you hear me? Yes. Great. Yeah, I, I, I missed your first part, but I want to say th thank you so much, Cynthia. This is Scott Warner. Uh, your talk was intoxicating. Thank you. I, I want to toast you for it, and, and you poured out a barrel full of knowledge for us. So thank you, sir. It was, it was wonderful. Thank you. Well, I think, it's, I think it's a fun history, and it's one of those ones that nobody really appreciates. And it's, uh, like I said, my first, my first exposure was... Um, in Australia, I went to one of the, well, they have a big rum museum in Queensland because rum was such a huge part of their, you know, their history. Um, and so I went through the rum museum and then went through a sugar factory and saw the sugar being made and the molasses being shipped down to the rum factories. And then I was in Barbados and I saw here, I'll show you a picture of one of the old sugar mills in Barbados. And so I saw that and I heard about that history. So that's one of the old sugar mills they had there that that was back all the way back in the, in the 1600s when they were first making sugar in Barbados. And uh, and then I was up in Newfoundland where I was made a honorary Newfie by being screeched in. By being screeched in, you have to drink a uh, shot of overproof rum and kiss a cod and then say, <laughs> you know, something about lung may your big jib draw. I can't remember the rest of it, but it was about, you know, sailing. So anyway, it's uh, one of those things where you start seeing a trend and you start thinking, okay, let's see, we've got rum is important here and rum is important here and rum is important here. And you go, I wonder if there's a, a thread here that connects them all. By the way, what was the condition of this uh, cod? It was actually frozen. Good. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm certain when they originally did it, it wasn't, but it's like by this point in time, they figured out the tourists really don't want to kiss a, an unfrozen cod. <laughs> Surprised it wasn't a plastic cod. Yeah, no, they, they still take some of their traditions seriously. Has anybody seen the musical Come From Away? Kissing I a cod is, is integral that. to that. Is it? Okay. They actually do that. They represent that scene in the musical Come From Away. That's fun. I've heard the title, but I haven't seen it. It's well worth seeing if they ever do theater in Chicago again. Yeah, really. I still have one play on my Shakespeare subscription, so I sure hope they do something again. Yeah, this has been a year of sheltering dangerously, right, at home. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's going to be a while till any of us get to the theater. 
Yeah, just even, you know what? I'm still not comfortable even leaving the house yet. Okay. I'm sorry. So this was terrific, Cynthia. Well, thank Absolutely you. Absolutely fabulous. Well, thank you very much. And I think we all enjoyed it. And I don't know if it worked or not, because yeah. apparently we, this was simulcast on Facebook. So oh, you cool. can look at it later. This is the second time there's been success in attempting to do this because I've tried many times and it never worked, but it looks like it will. And um, and you're getting ready. Are you? Do you want to talk about your new uh, book project or not? Sure. Why not? Um, my I'll be going on a trip for my sometime you know, for the final trip for this next book project, which is called Visiting Midwestern History, and it's uh, sort of basically telling. Midwestern history through the places that you can kind of see it um, from really great museums to fabulous living history venues to reenactments to so it's been a lot of fun driving all over the Midwest and seeing these places because there's just so much history here. One of my favorite little factoids though too from the American history or from Midwestern history just gives you some idea of how fast Midwestern history developed is that Laura, Laura Ingalls was only four months older than Frank Lloyd Wright. Wow. They were both born in Wisconsin in 1867. What? The, the, the difference is, is Frank Lloyd Wright stayed while, while, you know, while the world grew up and the Ingalls family followed the frontier. That's fascinating. So lots of fun stuff, but some amazing places to go. So you will. definitely have a lot of recommendations for you in that book. It won't be everything, but it will be a lot of it. And it's just this amazing, I mean, it's like, like if you haven't seen the Arabia Steamship or Steamboat Museum in Kansas City, it's mind blowing. And the uh, forestry uh, living history venue up in Minnesota, um, that was wonderful. I mean, there's just so many fabulous, fabulous places to see history happening. And I made a little contribution to your book um, sidebar on state fairs, which as of this moment, I have exactly one state fair to visit unless they cancel me, which I'm pretty much waiting for them to do. Yeah. Missouri State Fair. Um, yeah, this is the year of cancellations. I know. Well, this is, this is my first speaking gig since February. Oh my goodness. Because everybody canceled. Well, we're glad you came, and thank you very, very much. Well, thank you. Thank you. And uh, we'll say adieu. 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 Party. Adieu. Adieu. Bye. 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 Bye.